two chapter two paragraphs one to nineteen of progress and poverty by henry george this librivox recording is in the public domain book two chapter two inferences from facts the general acceptance of the malthusian theory and the high authority by which it is endorsed have seemed to me to make it expedient to review its grounds and the causes which have conspired to give it such a dominating influence in the discussion of social questions but when we subject the theory itself to the test of straightforward analysis it will i think be found as utterly untenable as the current theory of wages in the first place, the facts which are marshalled in support of this theory do not prove it, and the analogies do not countenance it. And in the second place, there are facts which conclusively disprove it. I go to the heart of the matter in saying that there is no warrant, either in experience or analogy, for the assumption that there is any tendency in population to increase faster than subsistence. The facts cited to show this simply show that where, owing to the sparseness of population, as in new countries, or where, owing to the unequal distribution of wealth, as among the poorer classes in old countries, human life is occupied with the physical necessities of existence, the tendency to reproduce is at a rate which would, were it to go on unchecked, some time exceed subsistence. But it is not a legitimate inference from this that the tendency to reproduce would show itself in the same force where population was sufficiently dense, and wealth distributed with such evenness to lift a whole community above the necessity of devoting their energies to a struggle for mere existence. Nor can it be assumed that the tendency to reproduce, by causing poverty, must prevent the existence of such a community. For this, manifestly, would be assuming the very point at issue, and reasoning in a circle. And even if it be admitted that the tendency to multiply must ultimately produce poverty, it cannot from this alone be predicated of existing poverty that it is due to this cause, until it be shown that there are no other causes which can account for it, a thing in the present state of government, laws, and customs manifestly impossible. This is abundantly shown in the Essay on Population itself. This famous book, which is much oftener spoken of than read, is still well worth perusal, if only as a literary curiosity. The contrast between the merits of the book itself and the effect it has produced, or is at least credited with, for those Sir James Stuart, Mr. Townsend, and others share with Malthus the glory of discovering the principle of population, it was the publication of the Essay on Population that brought it prominently forward, is, it seems to me, one of the most remarkable things in the history of literature. And it is easy to understand how Godwin, whose political justice provoked the Essay on Population, should until his old age have disdained a reply. It begins with the assumption that population tends to increase in a geometrical ratio, while subsistence can at best be made to increase only in an arithmetical ratio, an assumption just as valid, and no more so, than it would be from the fact that a puppy doubled the length of his tail while he added so many pounds to his weight, to assert a geometric progression of tail and an arithmetical progression of weight. 
and the inference from the assumption is just such as swift in satire might have credited to the savants of a previously dogless island who by bringing these two ratios together might deduce the very striking consequence that by the time the dog grew to a weight of fifty pounds his tail would be over a mile long and extremely difficult to wag and hence recommend the prudential check of a bandage as the only alternative to the positive check of constant amputations commencing with such an absurdity the essay includes a long argument for the imposition of a duty on the importation and the payment of a bounty for the exportation of corn an idea that has long since been sent to the limbo of exploded fallacies and it is marked throughout the argumentative portions by passages which show on the part of the reverent gentleman the most ridiculous incapacity for logical thought as for instance that if wages were to be increased from eighteen pence or two shillings per day to five shillings meat would necessarily increase in price from eight or nine pence to two or three shillings per pound and the condition of the labouring classes would therefore not be improved a statement to which i can think of no parallel so close as a proposition i once heard a certain printer gravely advance that because an author whom he had known was forty years old when he was twenty the author must now be eighty years old because he the printer was forty this confusion of thought does not merely crop out here and there it characterizes the whole work footnote malthus other works though written after he became famous made no mark and are treated with contempt even by those who find in the essay a great discovery the encyclopaedia britannica for instance though fully accepting the malthusian theory says of malthus political economy it is very ill arranged and is in no respect either a practical or a scientific exposition of the subject it is in great part occupied with an examination of parts of mr ricardo's peculiar doctrines and with an inquiry into the nature and causes of value nothing however can be more unsatisfactory than these discussions in truth mr malthus never had any clear or accurate perception of mr ricardo's theories or of the principles which determine the value in exchange of different articles End of footnote. the main body of the book is taken up with what is in reality a refutation of the theory which the book advances for Malthus' review of what he calls the positive checks to population is simply the showing that the results which he attributes to overpopulation actually arise from other causes. Of all the cases cited, and pretty much the whole globe is passed over in the survey, in which vice and misery check increase by limiting marriages or shortening the term of human life, there is not a single case in which the vice and misery can be traced to an actual increase in the number of mouths over the power of the accompanying hands to feed them but in every case the vice and misery are shown to spring either from unsocial ignorance and rapacity or from bad government unjust laws or destructive warfare nor what malthus failed to show has any one since him shown the globe may be surveyed and history may be reviewed in vain for any instance of a considerable country in which poverty and want can be fairly attributed to the pressure of an increasing population footnote on a considerable country i say considerable country because there may be small islands such as pitcairn's island cut off from communication with the rest of the world and consequently from the exchanges which are necessary to the improved modes of production resorted to as population becomes dense which may seem to offer examples in point 
A moment's reflection, however, will show that these exceptional cases are not in point. End of footnote. Whatever be the possible dangers involved in the power of human increase, they have never yet appeared. Whatever may sometime be, this never yet has been the evil that has afflicted mankind. Population always tending to overpass the limit of subsistence. How is it, then, that this globe of ours, after all the thousands, and it is now thought millions of years, that man has been upon the earth, is yet so thinly populated? How is it, then, that so many of the hives of human life are now deserted, that once cultivated fields are rank with jungle, and the wild beast licks her cubs where once were busy haunts of men? It is a fact that as we count our increasing millions we are apt to lose sight of, nevertheless it is a fact, that in what we know of the world's history decadence of population is as common as increase. Whether the aggregate population of the earth is now greater than at any previous epoch is a speculation which can deal only with guesses. Since Montesquieu, in the early part of the last century, asserted, what was then probably the prevailing impression, that the population of the earth had, since the Christian era, greatly declined, opinion has run the other way. But the tendency of recent investigation and exploration has been to give greater credit to what have been deemed the exaggerated accounts of ancient historians and travellers, and to reveal indications of denser populations and more advanced civilizations than had before been suspected, as well as of a higher antiquity in the human race. And in basing our estimates of population upon the development of trade, the advance of the arts, and the size of cities, we are apt to underrate the density of population which the intensive cultivations, characteristic of the earlier civilizations, are capable of maintaining, especially where irrigation is resorted to. As we may see from the closely cultivated districts of China and Europe, a very great population of simple habits can readily exist with very little commerce and a much lower stage of those arts in which modern progress has been most marked, and without that tendency to concentrate in cities which modern populations show. Footnote. As may be seen from the map in H. H. Bancroft's Native Races, the state of Veracruz is not one of those parts of Mexico noticeable for its antiquities. Yet Hugo Fink of Cordova, writing to the Smithsonian Institute, reports 1870, says there is hardly a foot in the whole state in which by excavation either a broken obsidian knife or a broken piece of pottery is not found, that the whole country is intersected with parallel lines of stones intended to keep the earth from washing away in the rainy season, which shows that even the very poorest land was put into requisition, and that it is impossible to resist the conclusion that the ancient population was at least as dense as it is at present in the most populous districts of Europe. End of footnote. Be this as it may, the only continent which we can be sure now contains a larger population than ever before is Europe. But this is not true of all parts of Europe. Certainly Greece, the Mediterranean islands, and Turkey in Europe, probably Italy, and possibly Spain, have contained larger populations than now, and this may be likewise true of northwestern and parts of central and eastern Europe. America also has increased in population during the time we know of it, but this increase is not so great as is popularly supposed, 
some estimates giving to peru alone at the time of the discovery a greater population that now exists on the whole continent of south america and all the indications are that previous to the discovery the population of america had been declining what great nations have run their course what empires have arisen and fallen in that new world which is the old we can only imagine but fragments of massive ruins yet attest to a grander pre-incan civilization amid the tropical forests of yucatan and central america are the remains of great cities forgotten near the spanish conquest mexico as cortez found it showed the superimposition of barbarism upon a higher social development while through a great part of what is now the united states are scattered mounds which prove a once relatively dense population and here and there as in the lake superior copper mines are traces of higher arts than were known to the indians with whom the whites came in contact as to africa there can be no question northern africa can contain but a fraction of the population that it had in ancient times the nile valley once held an enormously greater population than now while south of the sahara there is nothing to show increase within historic times and widespread depopulation was certainly caused by the slave trade as for asia which even now contains more than half the human race though it is not much more than half as densely populated as europe there are indications that both india and china once contained larger populations than now while that great breeding-ground of men from which issued swarms that overran both countries and sent great waves of people rolling upon europe must have been once far more populous but the most marked change is in asia minor syria babylonia persia and in short that vast district which yielded to the conquering arms of alexander where were once great cities and teeming populations are now squalid villages and barren wastes it is somewhat strange that among all the theories that have been raised that of a fixed quantity to human life on this earth has not been broached it would at least better accord with historical facts than that of the constant tendency of population to outrun subsistence it is clear that population has here ebbed and there flowed its centres have changed new nations have arisen and old nations declined sparsely settled districts have become populous and populous districts have lost their population but as far back as we can go without abandoning ourselves wholly to inference there is nothing to show continuous increase or even clearly to show an aggregate increase from time to time the advance of the pioneers of peoples has so far as we can discern never been into uninhabited lands their march has always been a battle with some other people previously in possession behind dim empires vaguer ghosts of empire loom that the population of the world must have had its small beginnings we confidently infer for we know that there was a geologic era when human life could not have existed and we cannot believe that men sprang up all at once as from the dragon teeth sowed by cadmus yet through long vistas where history tradition and antiquities shed a light that is lost in faint glimmers we may discern large populations and during these long periods the principle of population has not been strong enough fully to settle the world or even so far as we can clearly see materially to increase its aggregate population compared with its capacities to support human life the earth as a whole is yet most sparsely populated 
there is another broad general fact which cannot fail to strike any one who thinking of this subject extends his view beyond modern society malthusianism predicates a universal law that the natural tendency of population is to outrun subsistence if there be such a law it must wherever population has attained a certain density become as obvious as any of the great natural laws which have been everywhere recognized how is it then that neither in classical creeds and codes nor in those of the jews the egyptians the hindus the chinese nor any of the peoples who have lived in close association and have built up creeds and codes do we find any injunctions to the practice of the prudential restraints of malthus but that on the contrary the wisdom of the centuries the religions of the world have always inculcated ideas of civic and religious duty the very reverse of those which the current political economy enjoins and which any besant is now trying to popularize in england and it must be remembered that there have been societies in which the community guaranteed to every member employment and subsistence john stuart mill says book two chapter twelve section two that to do this without state regulation of marriages and births would be to produce a state of general misery and degradation these consequences he says have been so often and so clearly pointed out by authors of reputation that ignorance of them on the part of educated persons is no longer pardonable yet in sparta in peru in paraguay as in the industrial communities which appear almost everywhere to have constituted the primitive agricultural organization there seems to have been an utter ignorance of these dire consequences of a natural tendency besides the broad general facts i have cited there are facts of common knowledge which seem utterly inconsistent with such an overpowering tendency to multiplication if the tendency to reproduce be so strong as malthusianism supposes how is it that families so often become extinct families in which want is unknown how is it then that when every premium is offered by hereditary titles and hereditary possessions not alone to the principle of increase but to the preservation of genealogical knowledge and the proving up of descent that in such an aristocracy as that of england so many peerages should lapse and the house of lords be kept up from century to century only by fresh creations for the solitary example of a family that has survived any great lapse of time even though assured of subsistence and honour we must go to unchangeable china the descendants of confucius still exist there and enjoy peculiar privileges and consideration forming in fact the only hereditary aristocracy on the presumption that population tends to double every twenty-five years they should in two thousand one hundred and fifty years after the death of confucius have amounted to eight hundred and fifty nine septillion five hundred and fifty nine sextillion one hundred and ninety three quintillion one hundred and six quadrillion seven hundred and nine trillion six hundred and seventy billion one hundred and ninety eight million seven hundred and ten thousand five hundred and twenty eight souls instead of any such unimaginable number the descendants of confucius two thousand one hundred and fifty years after his death in the reign of kangi numbered eleven thousand males or say twenty two thousand souls this is quite a discrepancy and is the more striking when it is remembered that the esteem in which this family is held on account of their ancestor the most holy ancient teacher has prevented the operation of the positive check 
while the maxims of Confucius inculcate anything but the prudential check. Yet it may be said that even this increase is a great one. Twenty-two thousand persons descended from a single pair in two thousand one hundred and fifty years is far short of the Malthusian rate. Nevertheless, it is suggestive of possible overcrowding. But consider, increase of descendants does not show increase of population. It could only do this when the breeding was in and in. Smith and his wife have a son and daughter, who marry respectively someone else's daughter and son, and each have two children. Smith and his wife would thus have four grandchildren, but there would be in the one generation no greater number than in the other. Each child would have four grandparents. And supposing this process were to go on, the line of descent might constantly spread out into hundreds, thousands, and millions, but in each generation of descendants there would be no more individuals than in any previous generation of ancestors. The web of generations is like lattice-work or the diagonal threads in cloth. Commencing at any point at the top, the eye follows lines which at the bottom widely diverge, but beginning at any point at the bottom, the lines diverge in the same way to the top. How many children a man may have is problematical, but that he had two parents is certain, and that these again had two parents each is also certain. Follow this geometrical progression through a few generations, and see if it does not lead to quite as striking consequences as Mr. Malthus' peopling of the solar systems. End of Book 2, Chapter 2, Paragraphs 1 to 19 Recording by Tim Makarios, idiophilus.wordpress.com